Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. There's something we need to talk about. What's up? Socks. <laughs> Did I not fold the socks this week? We never fold the socks. You and I are both guilty of it. We actually have a sock problem in our house. I know. We have this giant pile of socks, and I keep thinking about like CSI guys that will like match fibers, and we can't put together you know, like eight different pairs of white socks. It's because bad. This one's longer than the other one. It's like <laughs> diffusing a bomb. Well, I think what that comes from is the fact that we just don't care about any of our socks. <laughs> we also have like, you know, crappy socks. <laughs> we do. <laughs> which is why we're very happy that one of our sponsors today is Bombas. Bombas? Bombas? I don't know, but... I think it's either Bombas or Bombas. That's part of the shtick is that they don't <laughs> it's 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 B O M B A S and uh, they're out to rethink a product that is an afterthought to most people. Not an afterthought to me. Socks are a problem in our house. <laughs> <laughs> like a ser- like we take them out of the dryer, we don't even try to pair, we just throw them in a basket and no. everyone is out for themselves like trying to find a pair in the morning. Yeah, but if we had Bombas socks, we're getting some. Okay. I'm going to get us some. I guarantee you because we'd, we'd care. We would care because these are fantastic. They have first of all, stay up technology so the socks do not fall down. They don't get all droopy. They don't get all droopy, which looks really weird. And they have an extra long staple cotton pattern to them. So it means it, it, they stay warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And no toe seam. No toe seam. Do you know why that's important? Because uh, it's sexy. Girls like me who wear boots, man, we don't want a toe seam like knocking in front of our fry boot every time we take a step. Uh, it's more yeah. comfortable. So these are very well thought out socks. They are well thought out. They're also a very altruistic company, which I like. I don't know if you know this, but socks are are a highly requested item in homeless shelters. Mm, yeah, right. And with every purchase of Bombas socks, Bombas will donate a pair of socks to someone in need. So it's like you're buying two and giving one to someone who needs them. And if you buy them and you don't love them, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So go to bombas.com slash crime for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash crime. Bombas, be better. Bombas, be Bombas. better. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get a phone call. And whether you're into buying socks and want to support the podcast that way, there are other ways to do it. You can go to our website, crimewriterson.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. We will be sending out an edition soon with details on our schedule coming up after the finale of Serial. If you want to get on that newsletter list, get on all of the latest action about what's going on with the podcast, the podcasters behind the scenes, and everything else that we're up to, you can head on over to crimewriterson.com. It's also a great place to go and use our Amazon link. Buy all the stuff that you would normally buy anyway. Help this podcast. Remember, it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just go to crimewriterson.com. Click that link we have for the U.S., for the U.K., and for Canada. Our friends can all do their shopping. And speaking of that list... Speaking of it, here are just a few of the items purchased by our listeners this week using the Amazon.com link at crimewriterson.com. 
it's funny. I would just print it out the list for my own edification. And there are so many power cords, like every time. How about the guy bought like all of his law school books? That was awesome. A lot of uh, supplements. Somebody, somebody bought a training head. A what? It's a Yosu adjustable steel tripod stand holder for hair salon cosmetology mannequin <laughs> mannequin training head. <laughs> Long hair models practice hairdressing with car. <laughs> wow. And Toby, anything else jumping out at you? I'm really I'm enjoying the live reads. The Donald Trump toilet paper dumped with Trump. <laughs> Highly collectible novelty toilet paper. Funny for Democrats or Republicans, give the oh, gift of laughter. I'm totally getting that for next year's Yankee Swap. Reacher Grabber Pickup Tool. Oh. For indoor or outdoor use. <laughs> Outside Central. Extend your reach by 32 inches. Rotating head for two different positions. Emu Oil, pure premium golden powerful skin and hair moisturizer. Four fluid ounces. Did you say emu oil? Emu oil? Emu. Yeah. Yeah, EMU. Like the giant bird? <clears throat> yeah. Mother hen and chicks glass salt and pepper shaker set with decorative sunflowers and old-fashioned hay wagon. Accents oh. for rustic kitchen <laughs> decor F. Decor F? F. 50 old age parchment, 65 pound cover paper sheets. Four by six inches cardstock weight colored sheets, four inches by six inches. Four by six inches. Printable parch. In case you want to write a constitution. <laughs> On four by six cars. Oh, here we go. This is good. Blossom small clear menstrual cup. Oh, a cup? Three cups. Small. Small? Swim speed secrets for swimmers and triathletes. Master the freestyle technique used by the world's fastest swimmer. Swim speed series. Toby, what? do you know how, how to tell if somebody's a triathlete? How? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about Serial Season 2's 11th and final episode, Present for Duty. And while it is the final episode of Serial Season 2, never fear, Crime Writers on fans, we do plan to soldier on with a weekly show, at least until the summer, and then we... (laughs) At which point, we might go bi-weekly for a little bit, but we will still be here next week, we promise. So joining me right now to dive in is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, all good things must come to an end. And Kevin, we did learn something about you in this season finale of Serial. Should I play that bit of tape real quick? Roll that tape. So Flynn, he's a big deal. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right, Sarah. You know it. And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and very big deal, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And finally, our favorite wet blanket negative Nancy, doubting Thomas, crime fiction writer, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. Good day, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) It's not getting any better. It's not getting any better. That's racist, Toby. That's racist, Toby. (laughs) Hey, yeah, can I start with two corrections from sure. last week? One, okay, I was told on on Twitter <laughs> I know it's that coming. Lee Remick <laughs> is a lady. Is actually yes, she was in the Omen, and it's Lee Emery. 
that I was thinking of uh, from Full Metal Jacket. Also, the other correction, Marsha Clark did want the D. Yes, she did want the D. So yes. your, your little uh, stanza yeah. there was incorrect. Yes, yeah. Did we spend time talking about Lee Remick and... Well, I mentioned in passing. Yes, he said that Lee Remick was the actor who played the drill instructor in Full Metal Jacket. It was actually Emery. And what's really funny is, even when you were saying it, I was like, I think that's a woman. But I didn't fact check it or anything. I just left it in. That would have been an awesome scene with Lee Remick. (laughs) All right. And uh, yeah. All right, maggots. So on Wednesday, we got a big reveal. We found out that this week's episode was the final one of Serial Season 2, which only turned out to be 11 episodes long. So, Toby, you were the first one to find this breaking news and then tweet it out. What did you think when you heard that this was going to be the finale? I was just kind of like, seriously? (laughs) Why is that? Uh, It seemed like there was more than one more episode of stuff to kind of tie together. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that's actually the case now that I've heard the last episode. But I found it a little surprising. Laura, were you disappointed to hear that this was going to be the finale of Serial this week? Or were you ready for it all to be over? No, I was disappointed. I felt like they definitely could have gone into some more. Like, I was still waiting to hear from the mystery girlfriend of Bo. So I was I was a little disappointed that it was coming to a close so soon. What about you, Kevin? I mean, it's, it ends where it ends. You know, the story ends. So I thought maybe episode 10 was going to be the last episode. So... But after listening to episode 11, I think that was the right place to to end it. Well, right at the start of the episode, we hear from Justin. He's a serial listener who, as it turns out, was in boot camp for the Coast Guard with Bo Bergdahl. It was really interesting to hear Sarah say that she, you know, got this phone call and then hear him say how he heard about Bo Bergdahl in serial in episode seven, calling his sister, saying, hey, that was that guy, Bo, that I went to boot camp with. Between him and another Coast Guard comrade, John, we got a much more graphic and dramatic story of Bo Bergdahl's breakdown at Coast Guard boot camp. Kevin, what did you think of this new version of the story that we heard in this episode? Well, it was it was much more dramatic, uh, and I think I think Sarah actually was the one who said it that it changed the perception of this being sort of a panic attack to being a you know self destructive, self harming incident. And then when you, you place that parallel to the idea that he tried to re-enlist, the system wasn't set up so that he would be filtered out. You know, knowing what we, we've learned now, it seems all the more amazing that, you know, that he, he went through. Now, again, we, we already know from General Dahl's report that he found that the recruiters did nothing wrong, that they followed the standards and regulations. However, he thought that the standards and regulations failed to find somebody like Bo. Laura, I know that you've long thought that Bo Bergdahl shouldn't have been in the Army to begin with, so I'm wondering how you reacted when you heard this version of the story, this first-person account of a guy saying that, you know, there was blood everywhere, on the walls, on the mirror, that it looked like Bo had maybe smashed his own head into the mirror, and that it was a much more significant event than him sitting on the floor with a nosebleed. What did you think when you heard this story? This just so graphic. It just sounded like such a much more serious episode than we had been led to believe it had been. And it really just hit me Again, you know, what was and like he said, what's this guy doing in the army? But then I also found myself sort of thinking about this contrast of there's a guy who cannot make it through the Coast Guard boot camp who smashes his face into a mirror, which just the thought of it sounds just so awful. But yet somehow he was able to survive five years in captivity without doing something like this to himself. So I found myself thinking about that, like why could he survive one thing and not the other? One of the things that I found interesting is that these two guys came forward and that, you know, it really is the first time that the Coast Guard part of Bo's life 
has been and I don't want to say it hasn't been fact-checked. I'm sure it was fact-checked, and I'm sure it was vetted, but that, you know, the serial team and the other journalists who've covered Bo Bergdahl have taken such pains to sort of dissect other parts of his life, and that, you know, these two guys would come forward after the podcast was released, email Sarah Koenig, and start this conversation with her. Did you think it was revealing that the layer of the onion got peeled back a little bit so we could take a look into that process and, you know, kind of realize that no one had tried to reach out to any of his Coast Guard boot camp comrades before this? Yeah, I guess I found two things about this interesting. One is that it was so clear to both of them that he had no place in any part of the military. You know, I think she makes this point of when he says, how did they let him get in? And she's like, he, you know, he got through five years of being held by the Taliban. And your reaction is, how did he even get in the army in the first place? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The other thing is, you know, it seems to me when you hear about how kind of violent and, and self-harming the incident actually was – I was thinking that that was probably the first time in his life that he had to deal with the difference between his self-perception as being this guy who can handle anything mm. and he's he's a warrior and stuff. And he finally – this is the first time he's, it's really been put to the test in a way that he doesn't have complete control over and, and he fails. You mm. know, He realizes he can't do it. I'm not sure, you know, if you have mental illness, it's not always like sort of this rational, logical progression. But I imagine that would be fairly jarring if your self-perception is I can handle anything because that's what you've come to expect and, and how you've lived your life. And then your first shot at something that would be difficult and you realize you just can't do it. You know, one of the other things that I was thinking about as you know, again, we've talked about this over and over about how should Bo have even be allowed in and the fact that they did follow the protocol when he signed up for the army kind of makes me wonder if this case is going to show sort of the need for maybe better sharing of information among different branches of the military. It reminds me, there was a case in the town that I live in where somebody was hired at the local hospital uh, that was like a med tech and had been fired at lots of previous jobs. But because, you know, there was no like registry like there is for doctors for those people that were in these, you know, lesser positions, it didn't come up on anybody's radar. And this guy, there was a pretty significant ramifications for this guy getting hired. He infected people with hep C because he was um, stealing medication and yeah. shooting up. And it was it was a really I was thinking kind of the parallels here. You know, there was a, this is a guy who traveled all around the country and he kept getting fired when he was diverting medication. And then he just go on to another hospital mm-hmm. and nobody was able to find out this information because there was no sharing of information. Like if a doctor or a lawyer or somebody gets disbarred or reprimanded, that's public. So in, in this case with Bo, it, it just seems like this just shouts that there needs to be better sharing of information amongst the government and the military. We will post a link to that case on our website. It's actually a very interesting story. Uh, one of the most interesting things about it, you know, from the radio side is that his name was so difficult to pronounce. We always had to put like a... <laughs> anyway, it's the Kwiatkowski case. I actually happen to know that that's how the name is pronounced, even though it has many more letters <laughs> than, yes. than that, but it's pronounced Kwiatkowski. And we will post a link to that case of the medical tech who infected lots and lots of people with hepatitis all around the country, actually, and was caught here in New Hampshire. We'll post a link to that on our website. So, Kevin, one of the things that Toby mentioned was the style in which Sarah pushed back on John as he was telling the story about Bo Bergdahl and saying he shouldn't have made it into the Army. And Sarah sounded almost incredulous that that would be what he would focus on. But, I mean, that's the thing that people are saying has been missing from season two, which is Sarah and her interview style. And actually, I think that's a very good technique. And I've kind of used 
use that myself in some cases. You know, if you're interviewing somebody on hardball, not even hardball, but if it's an interview where you're hearing in the broadcast both sides of the the interview, the interviewer is also on and performing. Mm -hmm. So this isn't as largely it isn't, so she can kind of like lay back. You mean typically she's not in the interview tape? Typically she's not in the interview tape. It's really about the other person. And so she can just be herself. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the things that gets people to open up to her. You know, I think this is actually like one of her strengths because I think she's being sincere. Well, I don't know about that. I think what she might be doing is starting with everybody at the beginning, letting them tell their own story from the beginning. So she sort of, I think pretends to be a little more incredulous than she actually is because she doesn't want to give that person the idea that this is going somewhere. She wants them to tell their own story. But I know that her interview style does actually, I think, feed some of the criticism of her that people have, which is that she you know, sounds a little cowed by her subject sometimes. She sounds very sort of naive when she talks. I hear that a lot. And I don't think any of that's true. I, yeah. think, it's, I think it's a tactic to get people to tell their own story, but it does pull me out of the texture a little bit when I hear her do that. But think, think about the exchange of about the what was the mission? But what was the mission? That the wasn't way she like said, that, though. No, no, it's like imagine the same setup, but it were Mike Wallace asking mm-hmm. the question, or it were Chris Matthews asking the question versus Sarah, where she pushes back a little, but she's not argumentative, and so she's trying to draw that out. Again, I think the thing that you, when you are interviewing for broadcast, the thing you are trying to do is get. Not only the information, you want to get a good answer. You want to get something that's quotable, colorful. You don't want a yes or no. Mm-hmm. So you want to draw something out of it. And I think that that comes very natural to her. She's been doing this for many, many years. Well, let's then switch to an interview that, to me, sounded a little bit more combative. I think one of the most combative-sounding interviews I've heard in any of the episodes of Serial. I'm going to go to you for this first, Toby. We heard Sarah talking to Michael Flynn, that big deal guy, the guy who was actually the big deal, Flynn. Oh. Um, <laughs> Uh, He was Stanley McChrystal's director of intelligence. He was with the DIA. He very aggressively answered Sarah's question about did people die in the search for Bo Bergdahl. Absolutely, yes. Sarah, what do you want me to say? Like a very, very sort of combative interview style. Um, He didn't provide like a whole lot of detail. He just sort of told like a yarn around it. I'm just wondering what you thought of that interview, what, what you thought of his account and the way that Sarah dealt with him. Well, I think he kind of sets up the sort of same point of view as basically the people, I hate to say pro-bo and anti-bo, but the people who want to apportion more blame for more deaths or whatever to Bo in that he doesn't seem as concerned about the specifics of any particular incident or case, but it's more he did an action that caused a bunch of stuff to happen afterwards, a lot of which wasn't good. And I think later somebody else says what he did had an effect. And mm-hmm. why, why are we bothering to parse like exactly like how many people died or, or whatever? Because of him, a whole lot of stuff happened. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is sort of – Flynn is sort of the first person – who kind of has that outlook towards things. And it, I think it was it was a little bit, he kind of has that one little scenario that he gives. It's like, oh yeah, I can connect that dot. And then Sarah's like, well, we looked and we couldn't find anything that like resembled that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, I think he's thinking like very sort of generally big picture rather than 
this case or this case or this case. Laura, what did you think of this guy and his voice in the podcast and you know just the way that he sounded talking about Bo Bergdahl and his approach to his interview with Sarah Koenig? Oh, I think he definitely, like Toby said, he's kind of on that side, you know, going into this, as I've, I've talked about before, when you mention this case to people, people are either like adamant about Bo Bergdahl should be locked up forever. People died because of him. And I think that you know, this is this kind of set up the rest of the episode. But I thought what was interesting in this kind of what I was thinking about in this part, you know, the army hasn't investigated any of this, but people believe it to be true. Right. And it made me kind of just, you know, thinking about what is it that is just these people that just can't seem to see things differently. And they're so fixated on this particular point of view and that this is what happened that you have to wonder are they ever going to see things differently, regardless of how much information Sarah puts out there that this isn't black and white? But it was just that singular focus of a certain segment of the population when it comes to this case. Well, probably not. And we keep talking about, you know, the idea of second and third order effects or, you know, what we called the last time the butterfly effect, because this resource was put here because of Bergdahl. It means that it somehow affected something else weeks later or, you know, and we talked about this quite extensively when we were doing Serial Season 1, which is confirmation bias. And, you know, people come into the story where they they already hear or they start to hear and they hear enough about Bergdahl and they decide either that he is, he's not just a deserter, he's a, a traitor, capital T. You know, he's, what he did was treasonous or that they're people that are sympathetic. You know, he was tortured. So, you know, it's a wash. And it's somewhere in the middle. But with confirmation bias, we hear the things that we want and it reinforces that point of view. And there are very few people that end up getting switched. You know, there's not a lot of people that went into season one thinking that Adnan Syed was innocent and then said, you know, but he could be guilty or vice versa. Those are rare cases. And I think it's the same thing with this, especially with this, because unlike Anon, you know, before nobody had any real connection to that case, we've got hundreds of thousands, millions of listeners who do have a connection to the military and could really take that to heart. Well, the, the thing that really strikes me, though, you're talking about confirmation bias, and actually, it's not everybody. There's actually been a lot of brain research into people who can be persuaded and people who can't be persuaded, and the lens through which it's researched very often is through the lenses of looking at conservatives and liberals and politics. I don't believe you. It is true. There is a lot of brain research about this. We can post an article to it on our website, and a lot of it, what a lot of it shows is that the difference between liberals and conservatives is very often the ability to weigh evidence and be persuaded. Anyway, it's very interesting stuff. But I will tell you, the confirmation bias thing, and I said this this morning, and it may not be politically correct, it's the reason why journalists hate people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I listened to this episode of Serial this morning. I listened to it twice. I went on Reddit. There were only a couple of comments posted already on the episode because it had just dropped and I was up very early. And the very first one was, oh, yeah, well, I still haven't changed my mind about Bo Bergdahl. And I thought... If not from this episode, which, by the way, even if you had a very strong opinion, should have at least made you think, like, I should weigh this more. 
what does it take? And that is the reason why journalists hate people. Laura, have you ever had that experience where you just hated people because because you actually showed evidence and facts and had the right voices, you know, sort of testifying on behalf of like the other point of view and you were able to, you know, and then people are just like, whatever, I just don't believe it. Does that make you crazy? Well, yes, I, I do tend to get a bee in my bonnet about these things and I do get a little worked up about certain issues. <laughs> so what, but I what, don't hate anybody. I'm, I'm too nice to hate anybody. What's your sense about what the obvious conclusion at the end of this episode is? Well, we'll get to that. I don't think there is an obvious conclusion, but there's certainly a lot to weigh, I think, in this episode. This whole season, but this episode, I think, you know, gave us a whole lot to weigh. I just want to go back, though. Kevin, we heard now, speaking of people on the, you know, that side, the, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't want to say anti-Bo Provo. That's not what this is about. I think it's people either blame him or see it more obliquely than just blaming him um, and, and saying that people died because of him. We did hear that description of Darren Andrews and his parents and how they found out about their son's death's ostensible connection to the search for Bergdahl practically during the Rose Garden ceremony. They got a phone call from a fellow soldier and then they spent three hours in that very car ride talking to news outlets when they had already learned to live with a version of the story. Suddenly it was blown right open and they're very, very angry. And that's how they found out. Yeah. What did you think about the fact that they found out that way at that time while this was actually unfolding? I think it was very unfortunate. It was pointed out that, you know, it was five years earlier. They had come to terms at least with what the story was. I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that they were over the loss of their son. You'll never get over that. And by the way, I have no love for what we're doing now, which is to parse out, as they said, who died and whether this was part of this or that. No love for doing that. However, yeah, it seems like a, you know, a very bad scene. And it's funny because when you're in the car, you're literally in a kind of bubble where you can't do anything. You can't like rush to a scrapbook or, or, or find the letter or whatever. You're kind of helpless in that way and you're just receiving this information. So other guys in the unit thought that you know somehow he he died indirectly because of or directly because of Bergdahl. I think that you know when we find out later on whether or not that's true, I think it's um, unfortunate because it kind of adds to the misery. Now, Toby, we heard then you know paired with hearing from Andrew's parents, we heard from John Thurman, who was the fellow soldier of Bose, who was actually there, you know, during that mission in Palau, which was tenuously, I think, in the episode connected to Bergdahl, if at all. He talks about what actually happened. He describes, you know, how Andrews and another soldier were hit. Sarah then asks him, you know, what was the mission? That's the part of tape we heard in the you know previews last week that we, she, she says, you know, what was the mission? And he very plainly says he doesn't know. He, had, he doesn't know why he was there. And then he draws a, a line that Sarah makes that analogy that, you know, Bo Bergdahl's walking away was an umbrella that covered all of the missions. And she said, oh, I understand. It sort of colored everything you were doing. You know, if you were under the umbrella, everything was connected to Bergdahl. And he said, yes. You know, he wasn't able to draw direct lines, but he went with her analogy. What did you think of that conversation and that analogy and that this soldier then walked away feeling very sure that his friends died because of Bo Bergdahl? Yeah, I think I think that logic I didn't quite follow. My sense from hearing him talk was that they were, for for a number of reasons, including sort of reinforcing the idea that we don't leave anybody behind. And 
that finding Bo was still a priority somewhere and that if you're doing other things and you can find something out about where he is, that's good, even if that's not the primary reason for the mission. So the sense I got was that just about anything they did at that point, if there was a possibility to get intel about Bo, like that was kind of thrown in as sort of a side thing that might be sort of ancillary to the the main thing they were doing. So how that then translates into this guy in this firefight was killed and, you know, it was because of Bo Bergdahl. To me, that didn't really follow from the other things he was saying, but it just has to be different when you're there. Laura, what did you think of this umbrella analogy that any mission that these soldiers went on, even if they didn't know what it was, they could relate to Bo Bergdahl? Well, I almost think it's like they probably didn't know a lot of details about missions that they were going out on. So I almost wondered if they sort of just assumed that this is related to Bo rather than it could be related to something else, which we heard later that these were often related to something else. But because this is something that I'm sure they're all talking about, it's on everybody's minds. I think it's almost like you can sort of envision that this is, they're just assuming that everything they're doing is related to him. I also found myself sort of thinking about, you know, we've talked about how there seemed to be sort of, I don't want to say haphazard, but, you know, there, there wasn't really a concerted plan to find Bo. There was a lot of things that happened that you're like, you know, this person's not coordinating with this person. And I almost felt like if they knew that they were always sort of in the back of their mind, like keeping their eyes open for Bo, they could say that they were always looking for him, even if there wasn't necessarily like a coordinated or organized plan to do so, they would be accurate in saying that they never stopped looking for him. Well, you know, this infantryman had the same perception that Bo had as an infantryman, that he said he looked at the war from where he was physically and drew conclusions about what the missions were. Just as Bo was essentially wrong about Lieutenant Colonel Clint Baker, you know, that Baker wasn't going to send them on a suicide mission, and that's never been borne out. You know, every infantryman thinks that, okay, we're going here because of this or because of that. It's, you know, again, like the the metaphor of the, the blind men and the elephant. And, you know, one's holding the tail and says an elephant is like a rope. And one is holding the leg and says, oh, an elephant is like a tree. It isn't until you hear somebody higher up in the chain who actually knew why guys were going to a certain place and what the missions were that you get a sense of, okay, this is what the actual state of play on the ground was. Well, speaking of higher up on the chain, we do need to talk about a familiar voice that came back this week, except with a twist. I like to call it the kinder, gentler Ken Wolf. But first we have some business, do we not, Kevin? We do. Is that that your segue? (laughs) That was awesome. That was supposed to be your segue. Listen, listen, on on the nightly news, it's the anchor that does the segue into the weather. The weatherman doesn't go, oh, you know what else was killer? This week's thunderstorms, you know, that, that's I bad. I am the anchor, and I said, first we have the business to take that care of. That is a crappy segue. <laughs> that is you know, not smooth. In, in beach volleyball, if you, like, when the guys are side by side and you drop the ball in between them and neither one goes for it, that's called a hubby wife. <laughs> <laughs> Did you read that in a book? No, I watched beach volleyball on TV. How about an audio book? An audiobook? Yeah. If there was one about it, if Karch Karai narrated his own book about volleyball. Yeah. I know because you love books, but you never have the time to read them. Well, audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to those books that you've been meaning to read while you're on the go, in, in the gym, in your car. 
at the beach while the girls are playing volleyball. You are creepy, Toby Ball. <laughs> Audible provides more than 180,000 titles from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. And their app, the Audible.com app, is free, and it works on uh, iPhones, iPad, Android, Windows Phone, just about everything. It actually works on over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own the books, so you can access the books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Wait, there are 500 kinds of MP3 players? Yeah. <laughs> seems like a lot. <laughs> well, somebody at Audible checked them all, and they all work. Audible.com also has the great listening guarantee, so if you decide you don't like the book you choose, no worries. You can exchange the book and get you know another title anytime, no questions asked. I actually am about to listen to, start listening to the Prime Suspect series, because I hear it's great, the bestseller on Audible. And you will hear it. Linda LaPlante, Prime Suspect number one. I enjoyed my British-accented Elizabeth George novel so much that I went for another British audiobook, which I'm pretty excited about. Any, anybody else got a, a recommendation for an audiobook? I do. Um, I recommended this on Twitter this week and also on Facebook, and people also went wild over it. The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. So for people that liked Gone Girl and like the unreliable narrator, this book, I, I could not stop reading this book. And what was odd about it is that these characters were all just like horrible, rotten, awful, flawed people. Yeah. And they're just awful, awful people, but you can't turn away. It's like sometimes when you rubberneck past a car crash or something. Um, but it was it was a very good book. What about you, Toby? Do you have any book recommendations for our audible.com users who are going to go to audible.com slash crime? Yes. Would you like to hear that? <laughs> okay, so if I'm going on a long car trip, I try to get a Bill Bryson audiobook because he's a he's a very sort of genial audio presence. He reads his own things for the most part. So I would recommend one of his most recent ones is called One Summer, America, 1927. He talks about this one summer, it's like four months, and all the stuff that happened in America. And this is when Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic. It's uh, the 1927 Yankees, which are considered maybe the best baseball team of all time. Jack Dempsey. There's huge flooding in the in the South and Midwest. And then he ties in stuff from other eras, too. But it's really, it, it's, it's very entertaining. He's a great reader. And it's, you know, if you're going to spend like 14 or 15 hours in the car at some point, that's what I would listen to. Great reader and a great writer with New Hampshire ties as well. Yeah, he's from Hanover. I'd recommend, because our listeners love true crime, that they would listen to A Checklist for Murder by Anthony Flacco. Anthony is uh, somebody who supported us over the years, and it'd be great to support him. Not a lot of great true crime on audio, and so this is a good one. It's called, again, it's called A Checklist for Murder. And so for our podcast listeners, Audible.com is offering that free 30-day trial membership, so you can go to audible.com slash crime today to start that free trial. And again, you'll be showing your support for our podcast when you get that free subscription to audible.com slash crime. Laura, is there something that you wanted to talk about? Smooth yeah, I was wondering. Uh, I was wondering if Kevin did any cooking for Easter last weekend for you, Rebecca. Uh, no, but I am actually. You know how like people ski and people apres ski. Yes. I kind of did the. Uh, how would you say before eating the, the leftovers? No. <laughs> how many days did you eat a ham sandwich this week, Kevin? Yeah, somebody actually cooked, and I sat and watched them cook. <laughs> well, I cooked all weekend last weekend, and I was giving like live Twitter updates to people. I was like, um, and you know, I like to cook, so yeah. I was making all sorts. I made this crazy trifle that weighed about thirty pounds. 
um, with fresh whipped cream and lemon curd and all this. So I was pretty much done with cooking by the time Monday came around. And this just happened to be the week that we got a plated delivery. Yeah. Nice. So that was a big load. I was I was kind of relieved. I didn't have to think about cooking anymore. Right. It's it's easy. It's fun. You don't have to plan the meals. It comes right to your door. Hand-packed, insulated box with fresh produce. Everything you need to cook a delicious dinner. Can we talk about that insulation for a minute? Toby, you, yeah. you got your plated box, right? Yes. <laughs> what did you think of the insulation? It was sort of like that natural, like, coconut husky type stuff. I wasn't too sure what to think of it. <laughs> Kept it cold, I, though, right? The cooler bricks or whatever those things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, those we had good. people over for Easter, and I put three of those in my cooler, and the stuff in my cooler is still cold. It is super cold, those cooler bricks. So, Toby, what did you eat from Plated? Did you try the food? Yeah, I made the uh, lemon chicken with onions and that other thing, which I'm spacing. Lamb balls? No, no. Well, I, yeah, there was a <laughs> lamb meatballs. Too. Wait, wait. Do you mean the lemon chicken? Are you talking about the skillet roast chicken? No, it wasn't that one. That, that's what I had. It was freaking great. It had caramel. Roast. Oh, my yeah. God. It had yeah, fennel, fennel and potatoes. Fennel. That's, what I, that's what I was trying to remember. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. Good. It was great. It was really good. Some dicing. Yeah. What did you think of the plated food, Kevin? It was great. We had we had two meals, and we had us and the two kids, so we made them all at the same time, and everybody had, like, two half meals. Which were huge, by the way. Yeah. The, the portion, <laughs> you know, if, imagine for two people. So the chicken was good. My actual favorite, though, was the brown sugar... Salmon. Salmon, mm-hmm. yeah, which uh, was, was... The salmon was fresh, and uh, the directions... You know, I think we're easy to follow. I mean, Rebecca could follow it. I could follow Ooh. it because I know how to cook. But the one thing that's nice about plated is that you can just prep all the ingredients in advance and put them in little bowls like they do on cooking shows. Yeah. And that's really, really fun. It yes. Fun. So prepare chef quality dinners right at home in a few simple steps. Hurry over to plated.com slash crime now and get a free dinner for two with free. your first delivery. Yeah, free dinner for two with your first <laughs> plated box. Go to plated.com slash crime for terms and details. That's plated.com slash crime. Uh, Laura, when are you going to start your meringue mail service so that we can all like um, get some of your trifles and meringues and other things that we see you cooking on Twitter? Ooh, I don't know. Maybe I'll do it the next time we have an in-person meeting because I don't want the desserts to stay in my house too long. It's just they're very dangerous. All right. Well, speaking of dangerous, I think that I famously called Ken Wolf the scariest man in the world on a previous podcast when we heard his voice talking to Sarah Koenig. And uh, what is it that he said, Kevin, so famously? That's a bunch of guys waiting to waiting get, get fucked. Fucking kill. <laughs> yes, we exactly. knew he was in fucking Pakistan. <laughs> uh, so this episode was That's very... That's a sergeant major right there. Right, right. And I think that we know, because we're journalists and we've done this kind of thing, that Sarah Koenig probably talked to Ken Wolf once and that she used this tape throughout the series. Mm-hmm. And she gave a little bit of a behind the scenes of how difficult it was to get him to agree to be interviewed for this season of Serial and then said something really interesting. She said, you know, that in order to get him to agree, he insisted that he needed to say something first and foremost, which was, I quote, the families who lost sons during this deployment to let them know their sons did not die looking for PFC Bergdahl. Laura, did it surprise you to hear these words come out of Ken Wolf's mouth? I was really quite astounded. I was expecting him to say something like we've heard him say before. So this was not at all what I was expecting. I actually had to go back and listen to it again. What did you think when you heard him say this, Kevin? I, I thought that was probably the most definitive statement you could make. I mean, as uh, the command sergeant major, he is the uh, right hand to the lieutenant colonel. He's, he may be you know, uh, a non-commissioned officer, but he is the highest ranking guy there. 
And, you know, again, he's the one who has the perception of what is happening on all these different missions. And so I know that whenever a soldier dies in combat, there is an investigation that the army does. It's not like a World War II movie where it's like, oh, well, Larry died today, tomorrow's Friday. You know, there's a paper trail. And the people who have looked at that paper, there's nothing in it that says, like, this was a Bergdahl mission. But there's still some ambiguity. And to hear Wolf say that, and I think that his motives are pure in that he's talking to the families. And he, you know, if he really wanted to lay it on Bergdahl for all that he did, he did to Wolf and embarrassed him. he doesn't like Bergdahl. No, no, he, he does not. But uh, he thought it was worth for the families to know that they should not suffer any further thinking that this was a result of that. Now, I was really surprised by Ken Wolf's transparency, and he told Sarah Koenig that one of the reasons why that perception persists is because no one in the Army is going to admit that they've stopped looking for Bo Bergdahl, even though they know he's in Pakistan, because that's just what you're, you're not supposed to say, that you gave up. Toby, what did you think of you know his explanation of why that idea you know may have persisted among the troops? And then also, what did you think of the fact that he said his biggest problem wasn't that the guys thought this, but was that they were talking about it out loud, and those consequences of them talking about it out loud. I, I think the continuing to maintain that you're looking, you know, it's really for two audiences, one of which is the actual soldiers themselves, because I think it's hard to send people into danger if they're like, well, you know, if something happens to me, they'll look for me for a couple of weeks, but then that's it. So I think you need to get the confidence that, you know, you're not going to be left behind. And then I, I think the second part of it is that they don't want the fact that they've sort of stopped to get out because, again, I think that that's bad kind of publicity for the military in that, you know, he's probably gone. There's not much we can do about it at this point. Well, Laura, what really struck me when Ken Wolf was talking about, you know, the soldiers who were continuing to spread the story about, you know, Bo Bergdahl's being responsible for the deaths of these six comrades of theirs, was he talked about, you know, loving the soldiers, about the fact that they could reach him at any time, the fact that, you know, he really cared about them deeply, which, by the way, a very different picture of him and the one we had painted by Bo Bergdahl in his own accounting of what it was like to be under his command, but that they were doing damage by making this correlation so publicly. Were you surprised to hear him say that? Yeah. I, I mean, I was I, I just I was surprised by this whole thing. I have to go back, though, and say I, I really loved when he just described that unit as the vanilla unit. Yeah. Um, it gave me a really good sort of, you know, I was like, oh, that makes some sense. Mm -hmm. um, but what I took from this was just, I, I wondered, you know, the, these soldiers that were talking and when they continued with the, you know, these, these six names, it really escalated this whole situation into a much worse situation than they started at. But it was like a snowball that really couldn't stop once those people went public. Now, one of the very effective narrative things I thought that Sarah Koenig did in this episode was that she, at this part of the episode, started laying out all of the versions of the story that were out there. So she said, you know, first, there's one version of the story that says commanders use the search for Bergdahl as an excuse. So the, of course, the guys in the ground would think that, but they were just trying to get more resources. And then she went to somebody, you know, she had two sides of the argument on that. She did that three more times before the end of the episode. Separating I, myth from... Yes, yeah. like parsing it out. But I, I do want to start with that, because then we heard from secret no-name guy, whose mission was secret and who wasn't named in the episode who said that absolutely, yes, they would throw Bo Bergdahl's name on every mission request so that they could get more stuff and so they could get permission to leave. 
We heard that rebutted by the guy, Paul Edgar. Paul Edgar. Yeah, the operations officer who basically, Sarah summarized, a little cheating, a little massaging, but not a scandal. Very different from what secret no-name mission guy said. Kevin, what did you think of that well, again, section? It's, per- it's perception. No-name, you know, secret guy, you know, wasn't there at the drawing table when the mission was drawn up. He said he was in there on different, you meetings, know, where they meetings would that, and, yeah. and deciding that. But there are other meetings, and then there are other officers who kind of understand how this game is played. And so, yes, there was some of that, but not to the degree that you think that it, when we listen to episode two, you know, there was this the, depiction is everybody running around spastic, trying to kick in doors, and that... You know, it was just like you just say Bergdahl and you will get whatever you want because this was such a priority. Again, I think it's an on-the-ground perception that this is what was happening. Look, in every organization where you work, where from sitting from your desk, you think at corporate this is what's happening mm-hmm. because you know. Mm-hmm. But if you were the CFO, you would have a completely different perception. And here we're talking about the Army, which is a giant institution, and you are in a war zone. So you can honestly believe that that's what happened. But as we know... Sometimes that doesn't line up with what actually did happen. Toby, do you think that Ken Wolf did a good job explaining why soldiers may believe one thing, but they really don't know what's actually going on or why they're at any one place at any particular time? Do you think he laid that out in a way that made sense? Yeah, I do. And I, I think when he talks about that one particular village where they're getting you know, attacked every time they went through and the whole history behind it and just these various people coming in and invading and displacing people and they're displaced by other people. And that context is sort of lacking when you're literally just like driving in and stuff is happening and you're, you know, fighting or trying to stay alive or whatever. And the sort of underlying reasons why things happen are are kind of lost. And I I think intentionally, I mean, I don't think, you know, the army necessarily wants the people who are on the ground to be trying to sort through all this stuff. Now, Laura, I want to ask you a reporting question, because the one thing I kept thinking about when I was listening to Ken Wolf was was how, you know, Sarah had said he would only talk to me if he could get this one thing out there, you know, that, you know, the soldiers' deaths weren't connected to the search for Bo Bergdahl. And then she didn't use the tape of him saying that until the final episode in which he appeared. <laughs> do, you, do you think as a subject that she had to do some communicating with him to let him know no, I promise that's going to be in here. That's going to be in here. Because I could imagine if you've made that the one condition of your interview and then it doesn't come out for, you know, 10 weeks or 12 weeks, as the case may be, that you kind of might be feeling a little bit like your promise was broken or something. Yeah, I imagine. I kind of was thinking about that and I was thinking she must have told him up front, like, hey, the way I'm telling the story, it's probably not going to be in order. I would assume that she probably gave him a heads up on that. Not that she could tell him how things were going to play out, but just that you know, that was part of the deal. And I wouldn't want to go up against him. I wouldn't want to go up against him. And you don't want that in episode two if you're writing this. No. This is a big reveal. Right. Because this is part of the whole myth around what happened to Bo Bergdahl and what the effects were. For me, to hear Ken Wolf say that because of his perspective, then I believe him. Mm -hmm. That those six servicemen who died, it was a tragedy. They died serving their country But there was no causality between this and that. But there are people who will always believe that. There are people out there who will never believe anything other than that. And that's okay. You know, if you want to believe that, again, you know, that it doesn't matter. The second and third order causality, then, you know, just because Bergdahl went away, it endangered everybody else. If that's what you want to believe, 
that's fine. We're not going to change your mind. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Kevin basically said it, but, you know, he's really laying out the case for the sort of immediate effect, right? It's like people went out searching for him and none of them died. But I think for the people that you hear sort of saying that that's not the case, it's not that they're arguing that people on patrol died, but that, again, it's it's the second and third stage stuff. And I think I talked about a little bit a couple of weeks ago, it's really, it's how far, like what kind of scope of effect are you willing to ascribe to him walking off base? Mm-hmm. So I think Wolf is, is essentially making the case for the smallest possible scope, right. right? So I think you can say, okay, yeah, from that standpoint, he's absolutely correct. But you can also say, well, that but that's not really the right standpoint. That's, that's not the way to look at the totality of what he caused. And I'm not saying that that's the correct way of looking at it, but I think that's the counter argument. Well, I think another counter argument, and this is the one I think Ken Wolf was making, was that the soldiers have cause to believe what they believe because Bergdahl's name was thrown around. I mean, it was... It was never corrected. It was never corrected. And also we heard from the super secret guy that his name was put on the paperwork for missions. It was sandwiched in paperwork and those missions had post-mission reports and it was on those reports. You know, we heard that they didn't want to admit that they had given up the search. I mean, who's going to tell soldiers, like, we've given up the search for your fellow soldier? Of course they're going to say if you hear any intelligence. I think Ken Wolf was admitting that there's reason for them to think that, but he's saying they would have been there anyway. Those missions they were on, they were going to happen, and and they used that specific Palau mission as the example. They were there for a different reason. They weren't there to look for Bo Bergdahl. We heard Wyrick say this in our last episode, that you know, to say, well, you the endangered people, you're in a war zone. Everybody is in danger. So, Laura, you know, one of the things that came out near the end of the episode that we heard was, you know, about these other AWOL cases, especially the one that really stuck out to me was the guy that was very much like Bo Bergdahl. You know, he walked off. He planned to walk to Europe. He had a plan. I he mean, obviously never looked at a map. I mean, that's obviously <laughs> not what Bo Bergdahl's plan was, he says. But this guy had a grand plan. He planned to go to Europe. He brought like a, you know, a... Sorted an axe. Exactly. A and back- Pack and, and he, he had yeah. a whole scheme. He made left he, a blood trail. He planned to make it look like he was kidnapped. He, he he sort of did a lot more planning in a way than than Bergdahl did. And then there was no consequence. He wasn't kidnapped. He he was just picked up by the Afghan police and returned. And then the army just basically treated him as a sick guy and sent him home and just kept it kind of like low key. It almost felt to me like uh, the analogy Toby made last week of if a drunk driver doesn't hit anybody, are they equally culpable? This is the mirror image of Bo Bergdahl. We see what would have happened if he hadn't been kidnapped. What did you think of this part of the story and and the way that Sarah laid it out? Yeah, this part really struck with me. And I was actually arguing with a friend today. I have a friend who's very much on the penalized Bergdahl to the highest level. And she's like, nobody else has done this. I'm like, no, this other guy walked off exactly the same way. And they, I think they recognized that he had some sort of mental health issues and got him help. Obviously, people didn't get injured searching for him. But I loved the analogy where they talked about it was like an astronaut taking off their helmet in outer space. Mm -hmm. And I thought that really put the whole thing into context. So that was really interesting. It was kind of like we were talking last week when we had our special guest who was talking about other cases and what the court sentences were for people that had done things similar to what Bo had done. Let's not forget, though, that there were consequences, human consequences to the dust one. And we hear about Jimmy Hatch and Mark Allen. And we cannot gloss over that because even though those six servicemen who died, it may not have been 
directly because of any Bergdahl-related missions. It really seems like these two servicemen were severely wounded on what were Bergdahl missions. Hatch losing a leg and then Mark Allen taking a bullet to the head. Yeah, his story was really just so, so sad to listen to. Just tragic. It made it very somber. And then again, it also sort of played again with my emotions on how culpable is Bo, or how do I feel about Bo's actions, the consequences of it. I was relieved to know, because I believe this because Wolf says it, I was relieved to know that although those servicemen died, it wasn't because of Bergdahl. But then the relief is tamped down by saying, like, here we have evidence of two concrete cases where these servicemen were injured and life-altering injuries that will stay with them forever. And it is because what Bo Bergdahl did, and in that way, he did endanger other servicemen which is one of the charges he's facing. What you're talking about is blame, which was the theme of this episode. Where does the blame belong? How did we get to the blame? I think the way that Sarah pivots to that toward the end of the episode, where she gets into the larger conversation about the war and our feelings about the war and its parallels to this case, is she has Ken Wolf tell the story about Kurt Curtis, who is one of the soldiers, one of the six who is named to have died because of the search for Bergdahl. And Ken Wolf refutes that and says that Curtis died. He blames himself for that, not only because he convinced Curtis to come to Afghanistan when he wasn't supposed to be there, but then he went on a mission and he feels like he wasn't briefed sufficiently for that mission. And, you know, Toby, when you hear someone like Ken Wolf, you know, talking about taking the blame for a soldier who has agreed to be in Afghanistan on a mission, you know, perishing in that way. What did you think of his telling of the story and just this pivot that Sarah made into this conversation about blame? You know, I I, I can't imagine what it's like asking people to put their lives on the line for things. And with the knowledge that some of them are going to die. So I think that's got to be a tremendous burden, even though earlier you hear Wolf say, that just by being in Afghanistan, it's really dangerous. You know, people are going to die here. So I thought that was an affecting way of, of sort of looking into his thought process about something that wasn't Bo and about the choices and actions that he had made and has to live with. And I don't know if understanding that he can make a little mistake like that and have that kind of consequence maybe makes him look at making a mistake with a consequence and giving him a little more slack than people who aren't having that kind of responsibility, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And, you know, one of the things that we also heard was that, you know, a lot of people in the military say this is normal. It's normal to have soldiers who make mistakes and don't fit in. It's just part of the deal, especially in this war. And that this isn't, Sarah says, you know, like the World War II, it's not the, quote, good war. It's not Vietnam. It's not the, quote, bad war. It's just an amorphous, oblique war. And that Bo's case sort of mirrors our national feelings about this conflict. Kevin, did you think that was a, a fair thing for her to say? Yeah. And I also started thinking about every soldier. said, oh, A lot of these soldiers are young. 
they come back and they are changed forever. All of them are traumatized. All of them are traumatized to some extent. And the same happened in Vietnam. The same happened in World War II. And World War II we ascribe as the greatest generation. But you know what was different? is that they came home and they got to say, we won our war, which goes a long way towards their coping. They saved the world. Right. Okay. They did that. And they can say, I have all these other issues, but at least you have that. Now, if there's no resolution to your war, like in Vietnam, and certainly in our war on terror, I mean, can we say we won in Iraq? Did we lose in Iraq? I I don't even know what label is. It's an ongoing concern. You don't have that, I don't know if it's closure, but it's a, a sense of... Being part of something. Of, well, no, it was like, what was this all about? We heard them saying, like, what what did I accomplish? Right. And so it's just, it ends up just being, when you think about it and you, you, you dwell on it, it ends up being two years of me being in the desert handing out watercolor maps and getting shot at and living with these night terrors, as opposed to... And also liberating the village and declaring victory. Now, Laura, near the end of the episode, we heard from two soldiers who we'd heard from in earlier episodes that had gotten back in touch with Sarah Koenig. The soldier, Zach, who was one of the people who really came out after the Rose Garden speech and said, you know, it's not okay to call him a hero. It's not okay. You know, he, he's responsible for these deaths. And he says that Bo is a repository for his bad feelings. Um, and then we heard Austin, another soldier, say, you know, he doesn't want to blame Bo anymore. He says, it could have been me that walked away. You know, the full sort of impact of his own trauma has, has hit him. Hearing these voices, you know, what did you think when you heard these, these two men say this? After these same two men earlier had been some of the most vehement, you know, Bo is to blame voices in the entire series. Well, it kind of gave me hope. It, it gave me hope that they really, I felt like they they probably really listened to this. I'm sure they listened to the whole season of Serial and really saw things maybe in a bigger picture than how they had started. I feel better for them, too, because it seems like they're going to be able to move on now because they're not holding on to this like they were. They're going to be able to have a resolution, put it away, and move on. You know, Mark Bull says that if Bo is to be punished, it speaks to our capacity for forgiveness. Do you think that's the question this season is asking, Laura, that when people get the full picture, like these two young men did, that when they learn it's not black and white, that they are more able to forgive and change the way that they feel and, and their own anger toward Bo? Yeah, I think, you know, as we go along this whole season, I keep thinking, like, what's the big picture? What, what are we trying to answer with this? What's she trying to do with this season? And I do feel like it was trying to put this whole story out there because we've talked about many times the people on both sides of this are just so strong in their opinions and putting the whole story out there and seeing once people know everything that was going on and know that it wasn't just Bo being a traitor or Bo intentionally walking off, that there was more to it, to see how people's human nature took that in. And I think, you know, it, like I said, it really gave me hope to hear that these two guys were able to maybe take a step back and look at this from a different perspective. You know, Laura, I was thinking today that I think a much more interesting way to present this story would have been with these two guys from the beginning, you know, start with them have them tell their stories, have them be sort of the protagonist, the one the ones who blame Bo, and then do all this sort of reporting around it. And so that central question would have been there to begin with. You know, can hearts and minds be changed once the full picture is revealed? I don't know. That's just a thought I had today. We we sort of talked about some of the flaws in the storytelling this season and not having 
having that character to take the journey with. And, you know, these young men have clearly been on a journey and we sort of missed it, you know, uh, throughout the season. Toby, I'm wondering what you think of of their turnaround and, and what you think of this, you know, larger central question that Laura posed might be the case, you know, our capacity to forgive once we see the bigger picture. I, th- I thought the last, I guess it's the last three people they talked to, because they also talked to Paul Edgar again, which yep. I thought was in some ways the most interesting little piece of conversation in the whole series. We'll talk about that. What do you think was interesting about it? Well, he was just saying, you know, that when you make a decision to go to war, you know that things are going to be fucked up. Things are not going to go right. The whole country signs up to go to war. Right. And that includes everything that goes with that. And we don't think about that. And that's something that, like, what Bo did, it's normal. That's the kind of thing that happens. And I think that was kind of what those guys... We're coming around to a little bit. I think Zach says, you know, it was going to suck no matter what. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I actually I found this whole little ending a little strange in the context of the whole show, because, you know, in all this stuff where I, I think she's trying to make you think deeply about the consequences of walking away and, and, and how people treat it and, and how much time and effort we put into finding him. And then at the very end, in like the last like 10 minutes of the entire series, you have these guys saying, oh, well, you know, that's the kind of shit that just happens. Yeah. And so in some ways it made it seem like, so we just spent all this time like just checking out something, which, you know, from a literary standpoint, if this was fiction, I think it would be sort of like looking at it as being like fractalized. I don't even know if that's a word, but, you know, when something's a fractal, it's like if you have a big thing and then you you break it down to smaller parts, all the smaller parts look like the big thing. Mm-hmm. And that what happened with Bo is really sort of the whole Afghan war, occupation, et cetera, like kind of writ small. Mm-hmm. In that you had like a plan that was not going to succeed. You had a lot of cultural misunderstandings that they talked about in the first couple episodes. And, you know, he, he was stuck in Afghanistan the way we are. So from a literary standpoint, and it's, it's hard to put themes on people's lives and, and real things that happened. Yeah, but literature comes from real life. I mean, as you're talking, I think about Ernest Hemingway wrote a whole bunch of books about war and its effects on young men that were about other things, about a guy, you know, an expatriate just sort of living his life and fighting bulls, but really who's just in a lot of pain and and makes horrible decisions and everything sucks, really because the war wounded and damaged him and it was bad for everyone. I've finished a lot of Ernest Hemingway books and thought like, oh, okay, (laughs) I guess that's where we are. So, you know, it kind of is literary in a way. We have that coda too, you know, right before the end where we hear Bo in his own voice. And Kevin, I'd love to hear you talk about this, you know, crawl out when he made that tunnel, go outside and realize how much bigger everything is than just him. What did you think of that scene? I I thought it was, you know, very good, introspective scene. I thought it was a good selection, you know, from the different things that he's, we've heard of his tape. Was it easy to dance to? You sound like you're describing. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm actually more taken with, and I know Laura is too, with the last two sentences. Well, let's talk about that. Because when you talk about like a book ending, like that is a fantastic, it was a so well-written ending. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it reminds me of Steinbeck, you know, that he ends his novels and it's like the last sentence is the point. Well, if our listeners don't remember the last sentence, do you want to just remind us of what it was? So he waits longer than he thought he'd have to. 
but waiting is something Bo knows how to do. Do you feel like that Tom Petty was going to like start <laughs> the walk of life? Yeah, exactly. Start playing. No, I mean, I just I think it's a great way to end. I mean, it, it also shows like you know, there's no resolution. The story's not over. Right. But we're ending it here. I thought that was great. Laura, do you think this was a good place for her to end? And and do you think it was well written and uh, a nice pencil point at the end, as Kevin did? Yeah, it did. And you know, I found myself maybe reading too much into it because I was thinking once again he's waiting. And he's a pawn in the middle of this because now this whole political infighting is going on about this and, you know, waiting for Donald Trump to go meet with the lawyers and everything. And I just... I found myself, you know, looking at it like I was wondering, was she making a little bit of an editorial comment there in a way? Oh, yeah, I think um, so. You know, totally, because it's like, you know, once again, here's this guy who's stuck in the middle, like he sat over there waiting, you know, he was over there for five years until he was useful. And now, once again, he's he's right there. So it's like this guy is just doomed no matter what happens. But that's the thing about great writing is that yeah. it works on so many different levels. So you can look at the literal and then you could look at the thematic and then you could look at the metaphorical, and it works on all those levels. I also want to give a huge shout-out to James Wyrick, who in our conversation with him last week talked about this very situation and the way that these agencies, the military agencies, do not want to give up their stuff. Intra-agency documents, that's what Sarah talked about very briefly at the end, but James Wyrick gave. If you haven't heard it, listeners, go back to last week's episode, listen to our interview with James Wyrick from the Task and Purpose podcast. He has prosecuted cases just like this and says that the request for documents will keep this going forever. And it speaks again, Laura, I think, to that inability for agencies to share and communicate and just resolve. It's always locked in sort of this game of political, sort of a never-ending game. And and Bo is once again in the middle of it. I don't think you read too much into that at all. Toby, what did you think of the the way that the series ended, uh, the, the writing at the end of it, and the period that Sarah Koenig put on season two of Serial with that writing? Yeah, I'm going to be the wet blanket on this one. Uh, I did not like it. Uh, I like it a little bit more after hearing what Laura, her interpretation of it, are you I, saying you have an open mind? I, I have a <laughs> slightly open mind. Tell me you've given me hope. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, the whole thing with the stars, I'm like, is really the last thing we're going to hear from Bo is like, sounds like a 14-year-old who smoked his first joint and is like, oh, man, the stars, I'm so small, it's so big. I, I just, it's Shawshank Redemption, man. If, you know, it, if it were raining and he had his shirt off, it's the fucking <laughs> Shawshank Redemption scene. It seemed like... For a guy who suffered and, and clearly has psychological problems and stuff, that he, at other parts of the series, was insightful about things and about himself. And to have, like, the last thing you hear, you know, I don't know. It, 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 to me, it just made him seem kind of a shallow thinker or whatever. And maybe if you've been in a cage for three years and you finally get out, that is what you think. But I didn't love ending that. And then I thought the whole, like, you know, Bo's really good at waiting or whatever that last bit was. Again, I just... You thought it was too heavy-handed? Yeah, it just seems like the kind of thing, like, if you wrote it at the end of a book, like, an editor would be like, really? Is this, you know... <laughs> you're such a negative Nelly. I is love this it. Really, is this really the way you're going to end it? Isn't there something that would be... Like, this kind of ties things up neatly, but does it really... It just leaves you with some reinforced impression of stuff you've already heard rather than give you something to think about at the end. Okay, smartass. Next week, you come in with a better ending. 
Yeah. Throwing. Would, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. yeah I'll do that. If it was me, I'd get Wolf to. <laughs> I'm sure he had some great bucking stuff happens, man. And all right. Well, you know what? This seems like a good time to move on to the part of the episode where we give it a grade. I'm gonna start with you, Toby, because you know I think I I, I want to give you a chance to weigh in and not be swayed by Laura's opinion. So why don't you give the finale of season two of Serial Present for Duty a letter grade and briefly tell us why you gave it that grade? Uh, I guess I would give it a B. I mean, I thought there were parts of it that I, I thought had quite a bit of insight into how people in the military kind of look at the bigger picture of what happened with Bo. And I thought that their insights were a little bit surprising to me and I think helped me think through what the situation was. But again, you know, the ending I thought was was super flat. What about you, Laura? What grade do you give the finale of season two of Serial? You know, I'm going to go with an A minus. I like that we heard Ken Wolf having a heart, kind of like everybody's like, you know, dorm dad looking out for them over there. I liked the ending a lot. I also liked that we had the questions answered about the human toll of the search for Bo. And we actually, I felt, got more conclusive information about that. And it really allowed me to kind of put the whole season into perspective. What about you, Kevin? I'm going to average it out at an A minus. I think it's an A for information and investigative reporting. I actually believe that Laura gave it an A minus, so that's not an average. I'm going to give it A for that (laughs) and a B plus for execution. Oh, wait, you're averaging your own. I'm averaging my own. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so I give it an A for the investigative part of it. I give it a B plus for the execution. Uh, So it comes together as an A minus. I thought it was very somber, but I thought it was a good way to end what really was a very serious topic and really shine some light on it. I actually agree with you in principle. I actually think while I was listening to this episode, I was like A, 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 A. And you might not like it, but I kind of agree with Toby on the ending, but not for the same reason. To me, the ending sounded too much like it had been written at the beginning. It sounded like they knew they were going to end here, and they already wrote this ending. They know where they're going to end up. It didn't feel organic with the rest of the episode for me, and so it just oh. for me it just stuck out. It did. Oh, just, I disagree. I feel like that. I feel like the heart of the episode was in the conversation with Ken Wolf, was in the conversation with the super secret guy, with you know uh, Flynn, the young men soldiers, and I really would have loved to have ended. I, I really wish she had moved some of her forgiveness. That's the one Flynn you agree with. I I, I wish she would have moved some of that forgiveness conversation she had with those two young men to the end because I thought that was the most interesting part of the episode. So I'm going to give it a a minus as well, but for slightly different reasons. And I just want to say for the record, I don't think Ken Wolf listens to our podcast, but if he does... I want to apologize to him for calling him the scariest person in the entire world. That was a mischaracterization on my part. All right. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of the podcast, a little thing I like to call the crime of the week. Police in North Carolina arrested a fugitive from justice this week, someone they'd been looking for for 14 years. During a routine traffic stop, cops got a records hit on James Myers. He's accused of failing to return a VHS tape to a video store in 2002. The store, which is now out of business, had filed a civil suit way back when, and when Myers didn't show up, it became a misdemeanor criminal case. So the cop pulled him over, embarrassingly explained that he was wanted for never returning his VHS copy of the film, Freddy Got Fingered. (laughs) I'll let you guys soak that in for a second. 
He let Myers drop his daughter off at school if he turned himself in later in the day. When he did, he was cuffed and booked. Now movie writer and director Tom Green says he'll pay the $200 to clear Myers' name. So nice, neat ending to our crime of the week. So my question for you is this, Laura Bricker, what movie would you fight the law to keep your hands on and why? Boy, you know, I've been thinking about this all week and I just, I really don't know. Maybe Christmas Vacation because it's something that we watch at our house every year and I, you know, it's kind of like a tradition. What about you, Toby Ball? I can tell you which one I wouldn't. All right. Which was when I was living in D.C. For some reason, I wanted to watch a werewolf movie. (laughs) So I rented The Howling, which even back then was horrible. And uh, I was going to return it and I put it on the hood of my car and did a couple of other things and drove off. And somewhere in between my apartment and the video place, it, you know, (laughs) landed in the street and got run over. And how much would you guess that a replacement copy of The Howling would have been in 1993? In 1993. I'm going to go high because I know that those original VHS things of movies were really expensive. I'm going to say... 1999. No, I'm going to say 49.99. It was basically double that. It was 95 bucks. Really? Wow. It wasn't actually the video. It was the plastic case that came with it. Plus, he didn't rewind. That's true. Kevin, what film would you fight the law to keep your dirty little mitts on and why? First of all, I think the real crime here is that Tom Green was allowed to make Freddy Got Fingered. Mm-hmm. I probably would uh, you know, fight for Die Hard. Oh, yeah. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Fun um, fact, Kevin can recite all of the dialogue from Die Hard start to finish from memory. Uh, yeah, probably. Of his choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is it a Christmas movie? You know, I I once oh, said I it is. It's it not is. really a Christmas movie. It I takes it place is. at Christmas. It's not a Christmas movie. It's not like Christmas vacation. I will say though that I did get busted for not returning library books, which I did return because they wouldn't let me take. Uh, they obviously wouldn't let me take out more if I didn't return the original ones. But something happened at the library, and they had a collections agency come after me. And I was like, "You library," <laughs> and it, it's on my credit report. Yep. So, does anyone want to know what movie I would fight the law to keep my hands on? No, we don't really know. All right. Yeah. Let's just let's just call this at this point. Well, I'm going to tell you because it's Bring It On, the greatest high school cheerleading movie ever made. And just like this podcast and Bring It On, it was not a cheerocracy; it was a cheer tatership just like this podcast. All right, so I think we're going to end it on that note. Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they find you there? At Toby Ball NH. And Laura Bricker, I understand that you are also on the Twitter. I'm on there way too much. It's at Laura Bricker, L-A-R-A. If you follow Laura Bricker, you will get some good pictures of food. I can attest to that. It is pretty great. And Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they find you on the Twitter? Tweet with me at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use our Amazon link. And if you love the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps new listeners find out all about us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission, and the show was recorded at New Hampshire Public Radio. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Blossom Small Clear Menstrual Cup. Oh, a cup? Three cups. Small. Small? <laughs> Do they use those anymore? Re- oh, God. Reusable. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, it's it, seriously. No, that's a thing. Don't be so sexist. Not everybody has to like live by your patriarchy of tampons, Kevin. Wow. <laughs> by the way, I totally live by the patriarchy of tampons. So you know, just say so, so you no. Know. Toby, we got the we got the name for your next book. The patriarchy of tampons. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Could be a series. <laughs> Well, wouldn't it be like blow our audience's mind if it just turned out like that we hate each other? Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> we're like Bruce Willis and Sybil <sighs> Shepherd. We're only staying together for the podcast. <laughs> oh man, we should start a rumor that we have like a, a we're on the rocks. That would be a fun rumor. Of course, you know that would turn into us really being on the yeah. rocks. So maybe it wouldn't be that fun. Yeah, ten years from now, when we divorce, it'll be like see, that's new. Here's and evidence. He's so mean to her. You hear him in the podcast when he told her to shut the fuck up. We did get, guys, we did get one complaint email about somebody who said, I know you hate Donald Trump. I that's get something. it. That was a review on uh, Oh, that's right. ITunes. That was an iTunes yeah. review. That's right. That's right. That was before your, your cackling. It's true. That's true. I am a cackler. Worry about all the saliva and the cackling may end up in a drowning. It's funny. When I read our iTunes reviews, they're mostly like so nice. And then the ones no. that aren't nice aren't nice for like reasons that are stupid. <laughs> Rebecca and I love preparing amazing dinners at home, thanks to Plated. Visit plated.com slash crime and choose from recipes designed for a wide range of tastes. You'll receive a hand-picked refrigerated box with fresh produce, everything to cook, an awesome dinner delivered straight to your door. Get a free dinner for two with your first delivery. That's plated.com slash crime. Plated.com slash crime. That was really good. It sounded like you meant it. I meant it. Well, you do like the food. Yes. What well, says I love preparing amazing dinners. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. No, you don't. Let's... You just like eating the amazing I dinners like... that I prepare. I love watching my wife prepare amazing dinners at home. <laughs> All right, perfect. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.